Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hello, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Cole, and I am excited today to chat with my very good friend, John Schwabish. John, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Thanks, Cole. Great to be with you. John is an economist by training. He's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization in Washington, D.C. There, he specializes in data visualization and presentation design. He also runs the data viz and presentation skills firm, Policy Viz. He's worked on a number of books. He's author of Better Presentations, editor of Elevate the Debate, and author of the brand new, just about to be released book, Better Data Visualizations, which we're going to talk about today. Congrats, John. When's the official publication date? Thanks, Cole. Uh, February 9th, 2021. I am itching to get it in my hands. I've, you know how you get, I mean, you've written several of these, so you know, when you get towards the end of the project, you're like, I don't even want to see it. I don't want to think about it. But this one, I, I, I want to see it and then I can put it away. But I want to, I want to hold it in my hands and smell it. I get that new book smell going on. Awesome. For those tuning in live, you'll have the opportunity to help steer our conversation through your questions. You can ask those at any time through the chat window, which I'll be monitoring and incorporating. So, John, I don't know if you know this, but I actually think that you are the very first friend that I made as a result of us both being involved in this thing called data viz. Right. <laughs> Because I think you and I were both blogging back when there weren't that many blogs. In yeah, this there weren't space. many. There was, it, I mean, it, so so it was basically you and Robert Cassara okay. were blogging. And I think Alberto Cairo, I'm sure, had a blog. But, you know, Alberto's blog is a little bit different. And, um, and, and, and Emery had just sort of started. So I was looking to you and Robert and to Alberto and to, and to a few others to see, like, what is this? world about because like i didn't even know there was a world of data visualization like the idea that you would there think, wasn't quite yet right yeah, or, right the idea yeah. that you would even like think carefully about your data how you visualize your data like was totally new so finding people like you and kim reese uh who's at periscopic at the time um you know it was this whole world that was like wow people are thinking about this and they're really good at it and like there's this combination of data people and creative graphic design type people and then there's all this associated world around tools because that was like when so this is what like 2012 10 something like that so that was like when processing was kind of big and d3 wasn't even yet a big thing um and tableau was like starting to become more mainstream so yeah this isn't oh, not even then i don't think yeah 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 slowly, right yeah slowly so it's right? funny because in preparing for today's chat i actually listened back to part of our conversation from the last time that you were on the podcast which was right. late 2019 right before elevate the debate came yep. out 
And I asked you this first question then, and I'm going to ask it again now okay. because right. I think that your answer has evolved. Because okay. in that first conversation, right, we're sitting in a restaurant in DC, you know, circa 2012. Right. We started talking about writing a book. And at that point, you said, I wouldn't write a book by myself. That would be much too much work. But your tune changed, right? Because then you did write a book, but right. it wasn't a data viz book. It wasn't and a data viz Presentations book. came out 2016. Then you edited another book, also not a data visualization book. Your third book, which, by the way, is a ton of books to write for someone who thinks writing a book will be too much work. Uh, now you've written a data viz book. Yeah, now I've so, written a data I'm curious. I, I know a little bit about the backstory here, but can you share this evolution? Why this book? Why yeah. now? Yeah. So at that time, so I, I wrote a book, I wrote an article on data visualization for the Journal of Economic Perspectives, which is a big uh, journal in the field. And I had pitched them this idea of writing an article about data visualization. So how could economists do a better job with their with their data, with their graphs, with their visuals? And it, it took a couple of times through uh, the process there to get them to bite on this, on this article. So I published that article. That was in like 2014. And after that article came out, uh, I got a call from Columbia University Press from uh, one of their editors, Bridget Flannery McCoy, who is now at Princeton, but was, would end up being my first editor there, who was fantastic. And so Bridget said, we saw your article. Would you, would you like to turn that into a book? And I said, no. Now, I don't think I was I was going back to like our conversation because I do remember having that conversation because you and I were fast becoming friends. There was a lot of you were sort of working on a book. Were you working on your book at that point? Not yet. No. But you were like, I think, like close. on that path. Yeah. You were close. Yeah. And then I know that Alberto Cairo was working on a book and Andy Kirk was working on a book. And I think Ben Jones might have been working on his uh, Tableau book. And so there was a lot of books sort of being written. And I thought, well, I don't. I'm not at the point where I think I can, you know, add to the conversation. Like, how is this book going to stand out? And, and the reason why I didn't think I could write a book on data is, is like, there's so much about tools and about design and, that, and, and about all these things. I didn't really feel like I had the, the chops for it yet. So I get this, this call from Columbia and I said, I don't really think I could, I can write that book right now, but I, I, I can write a book on presentation skills and presentation design. And I think there's a, there's a spot for a spot for that kind of book in the market. So, you know, to that, at that point, it's basically Carmine Gallo has a few books, you know, presentation secrets of Steve jobs. I don't even think this, you know, the, the, his Ted talk wasn't out. His Ted talk book wasn't out yet. Storyteller secret wasn't out yet. Um, Nancy Duarte had her, had several of her books out resonate and um, slideology. And then Gar Reynolds had his books out. Yeah. And there are a few others, but those are kind of the big ones. And I really did think that there was a spot in the literature to say a couple of things. One, that anybody can make good slides and be a good presenter, that you don't need to be, you know, a TED Talk style person. Like I've attended, as you have, as many people on this call have, we've seen hundreds of presentations, many of which are awful. And there are easy-ish good ways to improve those presentations. And also... For my particular audience, right? My particular audience of scholars, researchers, data analysts. Like, there's a better way. And so that so that book got got approved. You know, I had to go through the whole process of of putting in a uh, putting a proposal and got that done. And then 
that book was actually finished in July of 2016. I was in Flagstaff on va- on my family vacation with my aunt and uncle and cousin. And I had to take the morning and sit at a coffee shop for four hours to finish the book because we were at the, like the reflow section. So for those of you who don't know, the reflow is at the very end of this process where you're working on getting the images and the text, all, like the flow of the book. Like, how does it actually look? Because in my books, I don't like to say in figure one, you can see that blah, blah, blah. I, I think it's just more natural and easier to read if you say, oh, the figure above, right? The graph above. And so we'd gotten to this point where we were trying to get it all to match. And so my editor was in New York <laughs> cutting, physically cutting up the proofs of the book with a scissor and a ruler and gluing them together on pieces of paper and scanning them in and sending to me. And then I was like line editing in this coffee shop. So that was July of 2016 and then that finished. And then a couple of years later, she calls me again. She said, are you, are you now ready to write your data this book? And I said, I am, except I'm working on this other book right now and I really have to get that one done. And so that's when I was editing Elevate the Debate. And that's both, you know, a pro and a con to editing a book is you are beholden to other people's schedules and other people's writing style. So while I could sit down and you could- efforts, right? (laughs) Exactly. It is like wrangling people together. You know, I- we had all sort of bought into this idea that we had a book to put together, but it, it took a while to sort of get that pulled together. And then I got ready to write this book. And in the strange thing about this book is that I actually wrote it in about, uh, I would say eight hours. I actually wrote the whole book on a train ride up to New York and a train ride back from New York. You wrote a book in eight hours. I wrote it. I, 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 well, cause I knew what I wanted to say. And I just, and I had all the material for my workshop and I knew what I wanted to put into it and I knew what I was going to say. So I had more or less written the book in eight hours. I mean, it wasn't, you know, done, but I wrote it, my editor read it and she said, this is great, but you're going to need to create all the visuals in the book. And so there's over 500 visuals in this book. So it was no small undertaking. And I like when I make graphs for, for presentations and, and for instruction like this, I like to use real data. So I don't just make up here's a bar chart where it's sorted this way and it's one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to go find some real data to do that. And that is like not an easy task, but nor should it be like, that's part of the lesson of it, right? Like it's never easy. There's always like this dot is sitting out here or you have all the lines are going down except for this two countries that are going the, you know, the other direction. And so it took a long time to sort of get the data, you know, make all the graphs and and learning different tools because I learned a bunch of different tools that we could talk about later. Uh, I learned a, I learned a lot of bunch of different tools to create the graphs. Um, and then I went back and added some third party graphs. There's a bunch of historical graphs in here. So I see RJ Andrews is on the call. So there's some stuff that RJ's talked about in his book and on his Twitter feed that it's included in this book. I've got modern stuff from a variety of different sources, which you know, things like from the Times and the Post, but also things from like the Hindustan Times and the Guardian and the Berliner Morgan Post. And so lots of like, I want to get a lot of different pieces to this. And so going through that process, you know, you have to respect people's work. So you need to get them to agree and sign the contract and, you know, all these things. So that's sort of like two years later, the book was sort of ready to go. So that's, you know, yeah. 
one of the most impressive parts of the book, I got a chance to have an early sneak peek, is just the, the amount and the variety of visuals. Yeah. So 500 visuals, what's the breakdown roughly of how many of those did you make? How many are uh, visuals from third parties? That's a great question. I don't know off the top of my head the exact split, but I think it's something yeah. like I made about 400 of them and probably another like 350 150 400 100 something like that yeah and i also like there's the the part where you make some of these visuals and they look great on your computer and they look great on the twitter feed but that doesn't mean they're going to print well right. so then i was like then i started putting everything into illustrator and i was like i mean i'm i can hold my own in illustrator but i'm like <laughs> i would definitely not claim to be like an expert. So I actually had to uh, hire a, a friend of mine who's a, a designer to make all those print ready. So that's like a whole other process because we're feeding graphs back and forth to each other. Some of them he has to sort of remake in Illustrator. So there's typos to figure out. There's like color coding. And then the way the book is structured, the last part of the book, there's a chapter on a data, on how to build the data visualization style guide. And so the way I, I, I approach that is to uh, each chapter of the book follows a different style guide. So I have a style guide. We follow the Urban Institute style guide, follow that. I follow um, the Washington Post, sort of use their colors for the mapping section. I use, you know, uh, the Eurostat uh, has this, the statistic, the statistics group in Europe has this great style guide and I use their colors and their fonts. And so that means for every chapter, you're changing everything up. So it's not like you have the storytelling with data, blue, you know, blue Template, color. Right, Template, right. right. Yeah. You're sort of like every time you're like reinventing this thing. So it was worth it though. Right. That's super it, yeah. clever. And to be yeah. able to see it. Yeah. Really. Drives it, the point it, it, yeah. And it does matter. And it, I think it's also valuable for people to see that a, a data viz style guide doesn't have to be very complicated, right? For the most part, you're talking about fonts and colors and then you're talking about where are you going to place things? Are you going to center your your title? You're going to put it to the left. Is it caps? Is it not? You know, how are you going to organize grid lines and tick marks and all these you know sort of things? But you know, even though there's a lot going on in basic, perhaps you think about a bar chart, it's a pretty finite number of decisions you have to make. So once you make that decision and you have that template built out, especially in your tool, so D3 or R or Tableau or Excel or Whatever tool you use, once you have that built out, then it's just a you know, a click of a button. Once you make your graph, you click the button and you have it in your in your branding. So, it was, I think it was a good idea, on the face of it. Like at the time, it felt like a good idea. But if I were going back now, I might have just picked, I'm sure it took some work. Just like pick like one thing and be like, it's all gonna be in green and red, the whole thing, right? And that's <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I do, I want to talk about style guides a little bit more in a bit. First though, let's go general. Who is your intended audience for better data visualizations? Yeah. So I am primarily focusing on researchers, scholars, people who are doing the sort of work that I do, public policy, researchers, economists. Um, and I really think, for example, graduate students can get a lot out of this book because you know, what the book does, and, and, you know, obviously I could say it's for everybody, right? The book is for everybody. And we all know that not every book is for everybody. So my it audience is, it is for everybody in that you're not writing it specifically for no. scripts, or maybe you were with them in mind, but anyone stands to benefit from the content. Right, exactly. So, you know, there are throughout like the chapter on uncertainty, right? And the chapter on distribution, I talk about 
Here's what a standard deviation is, right? Here's the basic thing that you need to know. You know, does an economist, a PhD economist need to read that box? No, probably not, right? But, you know, someone no. who's maybe just, <laughs> we hope, someone who's just starting out, maybe they do need, need that or they need a refresher on that. But I do think it's, it's valuable for anybody who's working with data. And the basic thrust of the book is to give people a broader sense of the wide array of graphs that are available to them. I mean, we all know and all know how to read and create bar charts and line charts and pie charts. And that's because that's what we learn in grade school, right? Like my kids actually know like how to read a histogram. That was part of their education, which is awesome. Um, but you know, they don't know how to like read a slope chart or a dot plot or a network diagram. So like, and, and, and so, you know, part of it is just expanding people's graphic literacy. So when they go to their graphic toolbox and they open that toolbox and they say, oh, I've got this data here. I'm going to make a pie chart. There are other graph types out there. Some are better. Some are maybe not so good, but there are all other graph types. So the thrust of the book is giving people a broader array of graphs that they can use. And so I really view, for example, your book as a, as a great like companion to this book, because I while I focus on best practices, that's not the main thrust of the book, right? So if you said, here's, oh, I learned from John's book what a dot plot is. Okay, so now I can go to Cole's book as just, you know, one example, like, you know, how do I use, you know, good colors? And how do I use good, you know, active titles? And I do talk about that stuff in the beginning of the book, but it's not the main thrust of what I was, what I was trying to go after. Because, I mean, and I, I, I wrote a paper on this maybe a couple of years ago about like, if you go through economics journals, it's like, 88% line charts. Like that's what we make is line charts. And there's nothing wrong with the line chart, but there's more graph types out there. I mean, that's just, that's just what it is. And so, you know, your, um, your project where you, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, where you have people come in and make the different graphs. Yeah. The monthly challenge. Version with data challenge yeah. yeah. The challenges. So like, that's a great example, right? That's part of this. It's like, Oh, I didn't know what a dot plot was, but here's some data and now I can try to make it. And once you, make it or once you see how to read it just becomes part of your your arsenal to make more graphs and so that's really what that's the main thing i'm trying to get across in this in this particular book can you talk about how the book's structured yeah so there are three main parts i keep looking down over at my little bookshelf here where i have better presentations i have elevate the debate i have r for data science those are the three books that sit on my i don't know why i have my own book sitting on my my desk. It's limited space. And that's what's sitting there. But um, okay, so the book has three, three parts. The first part uh, starts on rules of perception. So anyone who's read your book, Cole, you know, you have that section on gestalt principles. So I gestalt principles. I also talk about pre-attentive processing, which is the way I like to think about um, uh, rules of perception and how our visual processing network uh, facilitates understanding. I also talk about best practices. So I have five main overarching principles or guidelines I sort of dive into in, in some deta detail. And then the third chapter, third chapter is on the different types of visualization. So the book primarily focuses on static graphs, but I want to make sure I at least talk about and acknowledge that there's a whole world of interactivity. There's a whole world of animation out there. So I talk about that and sort of build out a little, a little space for that. And then that's, so that's part one. And then part two is what my editor and I call the meat of the book. So that's, several, each chapter dedicated to a different data type. So the first chapter four is on visualizations that are used to compare categories. So this is bar charts, 
This is paired bar charts, diverging bar charts. It gets into dot plots. It gets into pyramid charts. It gets into all sorts of these other these other terms. So that's chapter four. There's a chapter on time series data. There's a chapter on part the whole data, maps, distributions. I think I said time. There's a couple others, and then there's two at the two chapters at the end of that section of this part that are not really included. In lots of other uh, data viz books, which is there's a chapter on qualitative data visualization, yep. because I think too many qualitative people just rely on the word cloud. And so there are better ways than the word cloud. So I, I focus on that. And then there's a chapter on table design. Um, and so tables are a way to visualize data. And so I talk about good tables and also how to make your tables more visual by adding you know icons or bars or, or lines. And then part three wraps up the book. There's, as I mentioned, the chapter on, on uh, developing a data viz style guide. And also part of that chapter is talking about good use of color, good use of font, talking about racial equity in our data and our data visualizations, which maybe we'll have time to talk about today. Yep. And then the last sort of content chapter is a chapter on redesigns, where I think there's about 12 graphs that I just redesign, most of them from government places, because that's the sort of work that I'm doing. And also government, federal government stuff is in the public domain. So you can just take it and you can, you know, redesign it. And so just, just, you know, how do you implement all the things that you've learned in the previous 10 or 11 chapters? How do you redesign a, a graph like this? And so, and then the last chapter is, you know, your sort of standard conclusion chapter, but there is a separate message in that chapter, which is I show visuals from people like Moritz Steffener and Nadi Bremer and Periscopic, uh, Pedro Cruz at North, Western or Northeastern, I can't remember where he is. He he had that that immigration visual from a couple of years ago that looked like um, rings on a on a tree. Yeah. So that one's in there. And, and the message is that I've given you this sort of library of eighty or ninety different graphs, but it's not a finite space. Like data visualization is an infinite space, and you know people come up with new graph types all the time, yep. and some of them are not great. Some of them are great. And, you know, playing with these the functions, the forms, the lines, the shapes, the, just the way we perceive data. So it's to sort of make sure that people understand that this is not a finite box that you have to live in, that there is no box to live in when it comes to creating visuals. And there's the world is your, is your oyster when it comes to communicating data. Well, and let's just pause there. So you said 80 to 90 visuals, and definitely you go through more types of graphs in this book than I have ever seen in one place. So I'm curious, how did you how did you make the list? How did you decide? You mentioned some of the ways you categorize them into different chapters. How did you decide how to do that? What did that process look like? So so people might know of my graphic continuum project, which I've had for a few years now. So um, there's this project I, I uh, designed with Severino Rebecca, who, who runs the data visualization catalog. He was sort of starting that project when I was trying to get my project going. And so we ha it's basically a library. There's like more than 90 graphs on these different products. There's a game, there's a poster, um, and there's some other things. And so we had spent a while figuring out how to sort of classify these graphs. And there are lots of these, what people call chart choosers out there. And I, I hate that name because it's like, it implies that you click the, you know, the drop down menu and it's like, here's the graph for your data. And like, it's just not like that. But especially for people who are starting off, it is helpful to see like, okay, for part to whole data, here's a pie map, a pie chart. What else could I use? Well, I could use a tree map. I could use a waffle chart. I could use icons. Like there's just other options out there. So 
that was really how it started. And then the way I teach my workshops is I spend a good amount of time going through these different graphs. You know, here's a Sankey diagram and here's how it works and here's how we talk about it. And so there's lots of other graphs and that's really where I found myself wanting to do what I wanted to do with this book, which is to take that workshop lessons, take the graphic continuum work and expand on it and put it into written form. So that when, again, you're working with your data and you say, oh, I want to make a, a bar chart, but I've got 80 bar charts in my report. I can't look at another bar chart. You know, the reader can sort of flip through chapter four and say, oh, here's a whatever, here's a dot plot. And I keep coming back to the dot plot um, for a particular reason, which we can talk about in a second. But, you know, <laughs> come back to the dot plot, you know, oh, okay, I've never seen this before. Oh, okay, so it's just the two bars. They're not bars, now they're dots, and they just sit on these rows and they're sort of connected. That Yeah, that will work for my data. So that's that's really what I'm um, trying to get at. So the the library really did come out of that work. And of course that keeps sort of iterating on itself and I keep thinking about it because is there really a difference between a paired bar chart and a stacked bar chart? I mean, there is, but it's also just, they're just bars. They're just sort of in a different arrangement. So you know, you move from like bar chart, paired bar chart, stacked bar chart to dot plots. Like that's just like, you know, you have different encodings, right? Bars mm -hmm. to dots, right? So, so that's, um, so that's where I was going. And, uh, and the reason why I'm focusing on dot plots is in my head is because you very nicely did a video for me for this uh, one chart at a time video series and came out yesterday and it's you talking about dot plots, which and I know you're a big fan of. So, yeah. well, and which my team, by the way, thought was very ironic because I've only made like a handful if that over the course of time uh, but it was fun to get to do yeah. <laughs> and we'll talk about the video series more there's so much to talk about right it, actually right. let's shift to a viewer question Aaron is wondering what the most surprising insight or two you gained after looking at all of the new data sets for better data visualizations that is a really good question so there's there's a few. So there's one graph I made of causes of death by age uh, in the United States. Now, this is pre-COVID. So I think this was like 2018 data, maybe 2017 data. Um, and by age, you see this really interesting pattern in cancer, deaths from cancer. They just, you know, just the way they sort of move across the, the distribution of ages. That was an interesting one. I looked at uh, math and reading scores in, I think like, well, I looked at all of them, but I ended up making the graph of like 25 different countries. And, you know, where you might sort of think countries will land in the world isn't necessarily the way it, you know, the way it shows up and also how things have changed. So this is from the PISA test, which is an international standardized test that I think uh, fourth graders and ninth graders maybe take. And um, so they do a math one and a reading one. They also do a science one, which I didn't use. But you see these changes over time and you see how the countries rank. And that that was that was really uh, fascinating. That's a really good question. Oh, and then the last one was I did a map of median income around the world. OK, so any guesses? Maybe we'll let people chime in on this one in the chat box. Anybody know which country has the highest median income? in the world. Highest median income. Yeah. Peter's guess is Qatar. Qatar. Luxembourg. Uh, Charlie guess I'd Luxembourg. I'd say Switzerland personally would be my guess. 
and I, and I will say that the right the right guest does not get a free trip to this country. Just so we're just so we're clear. <laughs> okay, Tony right, says so Sweden, Norway, Luxembourg. Another guest for Luxembourg from Louise. Jessica has Norway. Yeah, so the answer is uh, is Luxembourg has the highest median income. Now, if you make a map of the world, right, your standard sort of choropleth map where you go from a light color to a dark color, you don't see. I mean, Luxembourg's a small, small, it's tiny. So you don't even see it, right? So I'm looking at this map, I'm making this map and I'm looking at the table and I'm looking at the bar chart I've made and I'm like, wait, Luxembourg, oh yeah. And it's like, you can't see it. So that was um, that was just an interesting sort of data visualization challenge, right? Where you, you see this map and you're looking for the highest income and it's like, it's not visual on it. It's not, not really visible on the map. And so what did you do? Did you change how you were looking at it? So I use it. I, I, so what I ended up doing was, yeah. So I made a couple of different maps, but I use it as a, as like, I, I kind of rewrote that section of the book to say, look, yeah. maps are not always the greatest solution to having geographic data. I think we're all sort of, a lot of us are obsessed with making maps. It's like, you know, I've got geographic data, so I'm going to make a map. And it's like, well, here's a perfect example why a map doesn't work, right? And, and you know, maybe if you wanted to show the top five countries of, of median income, maybe that works. But like in this example, if you're just going to make this choropleth map, you are not going to even see the country with the highest income. So, I, I, yeah, that, that one was, was interesting uh, to me. And actually, that's a good segue into a question that just came in, which is whether the graphs in your book are explanatory or exploratory. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. about your exploration process. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> so they are primarily explanatory because, again, I'm thinking about my reader who's, you know, an economist writing a research report. Here's the unemployment rate. It's done this and this for this group and this and this for this other group. And here's a line going up and here's a line going down. And that's an explanatory graph. That being said there is a whole chapter on the differences or the balance between explanatory and exploratory graphs. And it's based off of a blog post that I wrote uh, some years ago. And I'll try to dig that up while we talk and put it in the chat box. But yeah, um, I think Mike's following, so he can stick that in there. Keep oh, great. Talking. By the yeah. way, we'll include all of these references in our show notes too. So yeah, that's great. So I'll just give you the quick schematic because it's not that complex. So if you imagine a vertical line that is what I call the form axis. So static graphs at the top and interactive graphs at the bottom. And then if you put a horizontal line on top of that, um, you end up with four quadrants. And that horizontal line is what I call the function axis. So you have explanatory graphs on one side and exploratory graphs on the other side. And so you have these four quadrants and you can sort of think about different classes of graphs. So I primarily focus on the static explanatory graphs. Again, here's a line chart. This line's going up, this line's going down but there's lots of other graph types out there um, and lots of other great books and resources to, to learn about those. So, you know, I tended to focus on, and I think, I don't know about you, Cole, but I find that people, especially who are just getting into learning more about data visualization are primarily making those static explanatory graphs. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. And Mike, by the way, just stuck uh, the form versus function medium post into the chat window. So that's Terrific. there for folks. Yeah. I'm curious in, so you talked about the graphic continuum being part of the basis for how you organized the different sections and the different graphs in uh, better data visualizations. Is there, or what's one less common or less well-known type of chart that you cover that you think could be used more and that more people should know about? 
Well, so, so that's kind of interesting, right? Because I feel like, like if I had to pick out three graphs that I think people should use more is the slope chart, the dot plot, and the heat map. Like, I know that feels like I just like came up with that very quickly, but like, I've been writing about this for a while. So like, but I think also in the data visualization field, that's almost like a no brainer at this point. Like, I think for outside the field, those are, those are new graphs. The one that I, I feel like I would like to see more of is the Sankey diagram. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like there's a lot, there's a lot going on with the Sankey diagram and you know, maybe 12 months ago, this would have been a more, a different kind of statement, but like the Miramico chart or the mosaic plot. Now we saw a lot of those this year, like, or last in 2020. Like, I think we just saw a ton of those where, for those who don't know, think about your standard column chart. If you're an Excel user, you have your standard column chart um, and you have your various columns. What a mosaic or a Miramico chart does will scale the width of those bars corresponding to another variable. So you have this sort of grid-like looking thing. And I, I, again, I think that's a really nice way to sort of show two variables. And the way I did it in the book was I have an example where I have poverty rates. I believe it's uh, poverty rates for, for like five different countries along one axis. And then I want to say it's different, uh, different geography breakdowns or, or population or something like that on the other axis. So yeah, I think uh, the Sankey diagram is another great one. You know, there's been some great projects using that because you get this really nice breakdown of these categories, right? And I think so. Talk through what would be some good examples of where to use uh, Sankey. Okay, so like when I, I see it done well, but that's so yeah. rare. So I'll, I'll tell you my favorite one, and it's in the book. So my favorite one is one I found on Reddit. Someone had, and I don't know where this person got the data, but they had how fifty-two ninth graders spelled the word camouflage okay so the first bar is the letter c so they all 52 students start with the letter c and then there's two sort of squiggles that go off to the side one that's ch and then however the rest of the word is spelled and then one that's co and how the rest is spelled and then 50 students started ca and and i see mike has put it into the chat window which is fantastic that is fast which is good because it also has how to spell the word camouflage in the link so i can do this right so <laughs> so i have to remember it every day so like uh so you have this bar that represents 52 students and then you have a slightly shorter bar that's 50 students that's c-a-m and then it breaks down from there so some some students did c-a-m-o some students did c-a-m-a and it sort of just breaks down until you see the you know seven or so categories of how people spell the word camouflage. I think that's just like a great example. And and the way I've started talking about the Sankey diagram more and more is I'm sure we've all seen like the pie chart where the one slice breaks out into another pie chart and the one slice breaks out into another pie chart, which is like impossible to read and just not very good. The Sankey diagram I think is just a just a better version of doing that. I mean it's not you don't get your sort of standard bar chart at the end, but it's still these little segments, right? These little these little bars are not on the same axis at the end of the Sankey diagram that you can compare. So, I wonder you could do like a marginal histogram, though, right? Like yeah. At the edge that would do both of those. Yeah, things? absolutely. Yeah, you could add all these other pieces to the side. The other one that I like that is not in the book um, that maybe Mike can can find for us is the pudding. Now that I know that Mike is here for us, uh, <laughs> fact checking as we go. Yeah, right. The Pudding did this really cool story on spelling famous uh, actors and sports figures' names. So you had to like 
type in Jake Gyllenhaal's last name and it would sh and you know you click the button and it would show you where you got it wrong so it was see there it is in the chat window so it's the same version the same thing as that reddit that reddit visualization but it's interactive it's it lets you sort of test your own ability so it's not static so that's the that's a nice balance between between the the things that we do in in the in this field all right, I see some questions coming in. Here's one from Great. Jennifer, who's asking how much fact checking you do when looking at other people's data visualizations in research and policy making. Are there best practices for the general public when looking at news and research? That's awesome such question. a great question and so important right now in this era of attacking science and facts and the media. Um, I do a lot of fact checking, actually, just just personally. And I especially do that with things that I want to share. You know, if I'm going to promote, especially if I'm asked to promote someone else's work, I will definitely go through the sources and the source notes. And, you know, I'm and not going to go process, in and, so you check out the yeah, sources. Yeah. I mean, I don't go through and like rerun code. Um, right. I'm not like, you know, if someone is a graph of poverty rates, I'm not going back to be like, well, let me do the calculation. But like, it's got to at least pass the smell test. And I think, you know, part of what we have seen in the United States and across the world over the last several years is that we are very quick to share and less uh, thoughtful about making sure what we're sharing is truthful. And I think if we did a better job at that, we would all be better off. And I'll, I'll borrow for a moment the language of Ibram Kendi, who's, who's written several fantastic books on racism in the United States. You know, Kendi has this, this concept of the anti-racist, right? The anti-racist is someone who's not just uh, against racism, but is actively fighting racism. So things that they can do to be, you know, anti-racist. And I think as, especially for those of us who are in the data visualization field, we need to be what I call anti-disinformation data visualizers, right? We need to not just be saying this graph looks questionable or this data isn't true. We need to be calling those out because in the data visualization field, we have the expertise, right? We know how to work with data. We, many of us, not all of us, but many of us know about statistics and standard deviations. And many of us know on the other side about how when color can distort or, or a graphic form can distort. And so we have the expertise and the ability to call these things out. And so I think it's important for all of us as we are sharing to share reputable places. Again, like, you know, I share a lot of stuff from the New York Times or the Washington Post, but I trust them. Like those are places that I go to all the time and I trust the work that they do. The Guardian is another one. The LA Times is another one. Like I trust those research organizations, right? And so I think it's really important for us to be as a community to be better at being this, this anti-disinformation. I just think Jennifer's question is so important right now especially what we've seen over the last week and a half or so, you know, in early January, for those who are listening to this later, that, that we do need to do, I think, a better job of, of calling these out. And, you know, Alberto Cairo's book, How Charts Lie, is a really nice example of, you know, how to be anti-disinformationist. Yeah, and he, he gets pretty specific, right? Of don't yeah. just blindly forward something on, like right. give yourself a few minutes and right. do a little research and fact-checking. It's just like, you know, you write that angry email, you don't click send right away, right? Yeah. You write that angry right. email, <laughs> go walk away and come back to it later. Same thing, you know, we're very quick and I'm certainly guilty of this. So 
you know, very quick to say, ooh, this is cool. I want to be the first person to share it. But I think it's really important for us to slow down. And, and again, no one is expecting people to go in and like re-download the microdata, rerun the code and double check. But like, you know, does it pass the smell test? Does, you know, the fact that Luxembourg has the highest median income, does that sound right? Like, you might not know, but like a quick check over at like our world, our world in, our world in data, yep. great resource for this, right? Especially for the work that I do, right? See any cross national comparison, I go right there because they have all of it. It's just easy to get. You can like, just look at a map. Just look, all I want to see is this map real quick. Does this sort of make sense? Yeah. Okay. This makes sense. Um, so, so. So Tony points out an interesting nuance. So he says, whilst you say that we should call out a graph that is factually incorrect, it is more difficult when the graphic is portraying the wrong message or is misleading, right? Because it's one thing to be wrong, like the numbers are wrong, right. but this is a... Well, so I would, yeah, so I don't, so I would, I would, I don't disagree with Tony, only to say that the graphic is portraying the wrong message, the wrong message there is a wrong message and there's a message that we don't necessarily agree with. Yep. Right. And so there are two ways to go about that. Right. So I think it's also of value to say, I see this graph, it is factually correct, but I disagree with the conclusion the person is drawing from that. I think that's also correct. That's part of the debate. Right. Again, misleading graphs, you know, it, so, so I've talked mostly to Jennifer's um, Jennifer's question about the data but there is the data visualization part. So like the 3D graphs, you know, are misleading. Like we know that they're misleading. Like, you know, anyone could go listening to this on their computer, can open up Excel and make a graph that, you know, give it round numbers, 10%, 20%, 30%, make a 2D graph, and then make a 3D graphs in, in Excel. And you'll see how the 3D distorts the data. Like we know that, we know and some people will disagree with me here, but we know that bar charts should start at zero. Like we kind of know that. I know there's some debate You're about it. Here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you see that, like there are some, for me, I'll just, I'll just sort of maybe wrap, succinctly wrap this up. For me, if I see 3D, I'm immediately, I immediately question it. If I see a bar chart that doesn't start at zero, I immediately question it. And if I say a dual axis chart, primarily dual axis line charts, which I know you've written about Cole and cited in, in my book is like, that's the other one that I'm like, okay, the these things, they look correlated. Is right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They look correlated because the person, the scale on this side goes from zero to a thousand on this side, it goes from one to 2.4. So those three graphs are the ones where I'm my, my, you know, spidey senses immediately tingle. All right. So I want to shift gears and okay. calm the conversation down before I get you riled up again, um, because I think one of these topics might. But you touched on a couple of things that I just want to dig into a little bit deeper in terms of content okay. in the book. Uh, qualitative data visualization is one of those, because I know you have a whole section yeah. on qualitative visualization. Can you yeah. tell us more about this? Maybe share some tips for those who are working with qualitative data? Yeah. And I, and I should say, I am not, I've only done maybe two or three real projects using like doing qualitative research, right? Doing interviews, doing focus groups. So it's certainly not like a specialty of mine, but I collect a lot of qualitative graphs. So I think most qualitative people, their instinct is to make a word cloud. And so for those who don't know, for a word cloud, you take your text, right? You've done your, you know, you've done your interview, or let's just say, or you've taken the speech and you put it through whatever tool you want to use. 
and you calculate the frequency of each word. And then the, the word cloud is each word is scaled according to its frequency. And the problem with word clouds is A, I don't know what the quantities are. I don't know how much bigger word A is relative to word B. And, and secondly, a lot of word clouds, some of the words are horizontal, some of them are vertical. You could have angles, you could have the fonts different, the colors different. And a lot of that just makes it harder and harder to read. I will say that there is, um, there is a group at UC Berkeley led by Marty Hurst um, that's looking at taking the word cloud and doing a better job. And the way that they are looking at it is you break your text down into semantic groups and then you create multiple word clouds. So this is something I actually have written up in the book. It's just so like, if you take an example is, is what she uses in one of her papers, which is you take a state of the union address. Though the example is from President Obama in 20, I guess it'll be January of 2016. And you break it into, into content groups. So here's the group on, here's the section of the speech or the words on the speech focus on climate change. Here's the part on cancer. Here's the part on terrorism. Here's the part on jobs. And you create a little word clouds for each of those. And so like now you can see small multiples. Yeah, it's like a word cloud small multiples. But now you can see that cancer, right, which only appears, you know, three times in the entire speech, but is a big like policy wise, he, in that speech, he's calling for like, let's spend a lot of money and cure cancer. Like that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do a moonshot to cure cancer. And so it comes up only like three times in the entire speech, but in this little like small multiple part, it shows up as a big so that's, so that's how I kick off that chapter. And then I talk about a bunch of other techniques. So, you know, icons is a good example. Uh, coloring phrases and coloring words is another example. The Texas, there's an example from the Texas Tribune in the, in the book where it's combinations of all of these things. So they have quantitative data and qualitative data and icons and color, and they sort of match them all together in this really nice uh, visual where this was for an election, I think, in Texas, where they looked at the platform of the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. And they just have for each content area, here's education, right? And here's how many kids in Texas are in school or whatever the metric is. Here's a few things. And here's the quote from each you know, party platform. And here's some icons that draw your eye right to this section, how they, how they sort of lay it out. So there are some techniques. And I think the other thing that... I hope comes through for qualitative folks is that although qualitative researchers or qualitative data, you can't just make a bar chart so fast, but you can tell stories with those data that people who have quantitative data don't, aren't necessarily able to do, right? If I interview people and I hear their stories and I hear their struggles and I hear, you know, their challenges and I could get that great quote and pull that out. That's something that people can, readers or, or audience members can identify with and they can, they can relate connect to. Connect with, right? It's not abstract. Somebody right, it's not abstract. right, exactly. Right. It's not, oh, this poverty rate is so much higher than this other poverty rate. It's someone saying, this is how me or my family or my household in poverty affects us, right? And that's just a very different way to think about communicating data. So it's not uh, it's not the longest chapter in the in the book, but it is. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that people could do with qualitative data that maybe are a little underdeveloped, and things that we can do a, a lot more with. Because, and the, and the final thing I'll say is that it's hard to work with qualitative data, yep. right? I mean, you think about you know, go download you know GDP for the two hundred and thirty some odd countries in the world. It's two hundred and thirty observations. Think about writing a page in Microsoft Word 
you already have more words than those countries, right? So it's hard to analyze the the, the text data. So I think that's that's part of the challenge is, is balancing, I think, trying to get qualitative people and quantitative people, you know, kind of in a room together um, and trying to share these methods. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Also, some good advice uh, was put forth in shifting topics here, a <laughs> Medium article from Urban recently, and I know you've been working on this in general, which is racial and I think gender also equity mm -hmm. in yeah. data and data visualization. So the article, which I'll make sure that we link to in the show notes, Mike, I see just put it in the chat mm, window, great. is about applying racial equity awareness and data visualization, goes through, I think, eight really concrete tips and some missteps and illustrations. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you talk a little bit more about this work? Yeah, yeah, this is really exciting work. Um, and I, you know, it certainly has come out of the events of the last year, you know, the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor and, and far too many others. Um, and I think for many people, especially those of us who are white and, you know, especially me, being, I hate to use, say middle age, but the last year has definitely aged me. So I'm now middle age. I feel that. No, we don't say it. We're not there yet. <laughs> but, you know, as a white male, right, I have, I've been living with my own perspective and privilege and, and, you know, I think the events of the last year have made a lot of us more aware of this. And I think the other thing that's come out in a lot of conversations I've had uh, with people is, you know, a lot of people want to know what they can do, like what is the action that they can take. And, you know, one of the actions I think that I can take along with my, uh, I should mention my colleague, Alice Fang, who's at, also at Urban with me, she and I have been working on this together for a while now. You know, one of the things that I felt that I could do was to talk about race and equity and as you mentioned, also gender and ethnicity and all sorts of other groups, how we as people working with data can take that lens or that awareness to our work, right? And so we we started this, Alice and I started this work when we were remaking Ur Urban Style Guide. We're sort of like going through this, not a rebranding, a refreshing of the Style Guide. The Urban Institute Style Guide is, is dense. And so we wanted to sort of update it. Um, we're making templates for everyone at, at the office. So there's like, there's a lot to do. And we got to this section on accessibility, which, you know, is discussed in the data visualization field, but it tends to be restricted to colorblindness or color vision deficiency. And there's a lot more to accessibility that I think we need to start talking about, right? People with physical and intellectual disabilities, right? You think about, think about someone who has uh, disabilities around movement, you know, how do they scroll through a phone? How do they use a mouse? Like, I don't think we're really thinking about these issues as much as we probably should. I think Microsoft Power BI is, should get more kudos for their tool that you can keystroke through every data point in a Power BI dashboard. Like, I don't think they get enough kudos for that, that you can go through a Power BI dashboard and you can hit your arrow key in a scatter plot and go through every point in the scatter plot. Like, I think that's amazing. And then we started writing on race and equity. And at the very beginning, because Urban also, as an organization, we were also taking a, a greater look at how we approach race and equity, right? We do a lot of work on criminal justice reform. We do a lot of work on low-income programs. We do a lot of work on healthcare uh, disparities. And so how are we as an organization and individual researchers, how are we talking about and to the groups that are focal points in our research? And we probably were not taking the most racially equitable, aware approach to that, right? Because again, got a lot of, 
you know, senior level white people with their own lived experience, taking their own lens to this work. And so as an organization, we're really, I think, doing an incredible amount of work thinking about this. And we just released in the fall a racial equity toolkit for research. There's an external version, but the I'll, I will I will say the internal toolkits that my colleagues have created is just amazing. I mean, really amazing. But anyway, so what does racial equity awareness mean for DataViz? I think there's like the easiest way to think about this for people who are in making graphs and visualizations is you have your your you you you're, you've downloaded your data, you're making a graph of whatever it is for different racial groups, and many of us will put out that graph and or table and the order of the variables, the order of the results is white, black, Asian, Hispanic, other. And the only reason we do it that way is because in most data sets, white is coded as one, black is coded as two. And so we don't really think about it. And of course that reflects a culture of white supremacy in the United States. And that's where the data is coming from. And so I'm not saying that, that people with we're using these data are necessarily racist. It's just not a, a thought process. It's like, well, it's coded one, two, three, four, five, six, and that's how I put it out. So are there better ways? And so what we try to do is in, in the paper and in the blog posts and in more work that we're doing is to say, it could still be that the white group should come first in the graph or the table or the chart, right? Maybe it's because that's the focal point of the paper or that it's sort of by population size or magnitude of the effect. But what we're just saying, instead of just taking it as given, is to think about, well, if I'm focusing on wealth accumulation among black-headed households, maybe that bar or that entry in the table or that pie chart or whatever it is, maybe that should come first. Maybe that should be the focal point. Maybe that should be the red dot in the scatter plot of gray dots. So we're just thinking about it. And the other one, and then I'll stop because as you noted, I'm getting a little ranty. Um, <laughs> the other one is on this word other. Right, like we have white, black, Hispanic, other. Like others, like, oh my God, like we are literally othering people by using this phrase. And of course, for those of us who are not data creators, and I'm not a data creator, right? I go download data from the government or from whomever. You don't really have a choice. Like there's just this category other. But could we use a different word for other? Could we use, you know, all, you know, all other self-identifications or people of different or multiple races, right? So, so that's some of the, the other things that we're talk, thinking about is like, are there better approaches? And many of them are just more verbose. They're longer. And that's just, that's just part of it. But I think it's, it's a better part of it because people do see themselves in the data. And it affects the way they see themselves in the data, affects the way they use the data or use the information. And I think we as a, as a community have an opportunity to do a better job here in, in improving the way we talk about and communicate with these different these different groups and there's a whole bunch of more examples in the in the paper so I'll, i won't belabor the point but just to say i think the overarching message in that work which i write a little bit about in the, in the book is that we need to take a more thoughtful approach just in general just more like there's no rules like there's no right order to the bars or to the table entries it's just like have I thought about this? Have I maybe talked to someone to say, am I using the right word here? Am I phrasing this in the right way? And I think that's, you know, that's really as much as many of us can do, right? I mean, just to think about it. And I think that that will say a lot um, for, for a lot of us. 
Yeah. And just to be thoughtful about this aspect of the design, like we are about other aspects. Everything else. We think hard about color and we think hard about font. Well, we should think about, you know, how are we using, you know, icons is like a dangerous area to be in. Like, are we using icons in a respectful way? Are we, are we, you know, misrepresenting people or representing people maybe ways that they don't want to be represented? There's a lot of talk in the book and in other things I've written about empathy and how we can just be, if we just try to be a little more empathetic, yeah, empathetic to the people who are reading or seeing our work, I think we'll be better off. Like, how do you want to view yourself in the graph, right? And, you know, I think that's, you know, if we just did that a little bit more, I think we, we, would, we would be able to tell a stronger message or tell better stories. There is so much more to talk about, right? But as it always yeah. does, the time okay. flies by quickly. <laughs> so you've given us a ton of resources that will make sure that we share with folks. But we've been chatting for almost an hour. So I want to move things to a close. Uh, so again, big congrats on Thank better you. data visualizations. Like you, I'm also excited to hold it in my hand. Everybody watching and listening, be sure to purchase your own copy uh, so that you can expand your graphical know-how and uh, literacy when it comes to different types of graphs. John, where can people follow your work? So you can always reach me on my website, policyviz.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Jay Schwabish. I'm also a little more active on Instagram these days, but I'll admit that it's mostly pictures of our new leopard gecko. So I'm not sure the date of his folks. Yeah, new family member. I'll check it out. Um, But those are the main places folks can get me. And they can also reach me over at the Urban Institute where I do a lot of blogging. And we do have a technical blog over on Medium called Data at Urban where I write a lot. So, um, So that's all the different places that folks can get a hold of. Awesome. And we'll list all of those in the show notes. John, what final words would you like to share with us today? (laughs) Well, before, can I just say one thing before I sign off? So you mentioned our early conversation. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but my first podcast was with you. Really? Before it was a podcast. So when I first started the idea of a podcast, I was actually just doing these like audio discussions. And I interviewed you at your house in San Francisco. Yeah, I, I remember that. We, we talked, talked about, about like, zero baseline. Zero baseline. Yeah. And I then, know. like a few weeks later, someone was like, "Why don't you just do a podcast? Like, it's got to be easier." I had no easier. idea that was the beginning of your podcast. Yeah, the beginning of the podcast. Wow. And how many episodes have you done now? Like a crazy amount. One hundred and eighty-nine, I think. Yeah, they're coming up to two hundred. So yeah, so you kicked that off. So that's how long we have known each other. You're an episode like negative two on the <laughs> Policy Biz podcast. So. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I would just leave everybody um, to uh, yeah to please uh, reach out. Uh, we there were a lot of questions here we didn't get to, and I'm happy to answer those. And anyone else who has questions, just reach out. And I'll just I guess I'll just leave it with everybody: stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope I will run into all of the folks on this call and elsewhere in person very soon. Yes, John, it has been great fun to chat with you as always. Thanks for taking the time. And to those watching and listening, thanks very much for tuning in.